Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we re-examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell. And today we are pulling back Hollywood's crypt to review 2000's American Psycho. She's an American And <laughs> between what I did uh, last episode for 28 Days Later and the Fallout Boy drop, I'm not going to be able to stop myself from putting in here. Um, I need to work <laughs> on my contemporary music references. But yeah, this one had some resonating factors. Yeah, I had some nightmares. It was cool. <laughs> Which I we're 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 gonna break them down um, a little bit if that's okay later. Yeah, sure. Just off the bat, um, do you want to tell folks who maybe didn't see American Psycho what they missed? If you skip to the movie, American Psycho follows the life of Patrick Bateman, a man in his late twenties who works as a vice president of a prestigious investment banking company. Bateman harbors increasingly violent fantasies, seemingly committing a string of bloody murders. However, at the end of the film, the audience perception shatters when one murder is called into question. Kind of begging the question, what happened? Did every murder happen? Did only some of the murders happen? Did none of the murders happen? Right. And so so you you sent me a text that was just what the fuck was that? <laughs> and i had sorry mom i I had to sit there for a moment and be like oh my god what what did i send her accidentally what what uh, (laughs) oh she just watched the movie (laughs) yeah and i just i'm really curious because like i i i didn't think that this one would be like the one to really set off some negative effects i mean like you 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 went through green room just fine yeah yeah i think it was i was breaking it down with alex afterwards and i said 28 days later fine zombies not realistic at all i think i was blocking out green room (laughs) so i didn't (laughs) maybe maybe i didn't comment on it for that but the violence in Green Room also kind of feels like very unrealistic. It would not happen in my lifetime. Okay. It would not it would not happen to me. But I think it was I think it I'm going to start on my feminism shit early in this podcast, but I think it was being a woman being like, "Oh, this is just really realistic to me that this could happen." I was going to say cuz like <laughs> 75% of the violence in this movie is towards women specifically intentionally. Yeah. And um I was reading trivia about this movie and one of the quotes was American Psycho is the movie directed by a feminist based on a book by a masochist because the book of American Psycho is much more graphic, much more violent, much more over the top and there's been a lot of commentary about the author that he has a lot of problematic views about women too so it kind of draws into examination this whole oh oh okay what is the source text really saying okay so yeah i think it was that was what broke me was the whole i don't have to stretch my imagination to imagine any of this happening to me I gotcha. And that's that's incredibly fair and valid. I'm not saying it's not at all. Oh no no. I, I think we live in a in a culture where So for reference, the the trailer for Joker just came out. Right. And so there's this really interesting conversation happening about toxic masculinity where like there is this movie being made about a a man who go who's who goes unchecked. But the people who are responding to it in such a way that, oh, he's just misunderstood. And there are a lot of women saying, oh, just like Patrick Bateman was misunderstood. So, or just like Norman Bates was misunderstood. Sure. The parallels are there. I, I you know, when the, the, when the movie poster for Joker came out, I went on Twitter and made a joke of, you know, coming to a shitty college dorm near you. <laughs> I saw that tweet. Right. 
And, you know, thinking about it, I can remember, you know, my, my college would do like a movie poster sale in a common area, like once a month. And you would always see an American psycho poster. And it was almost always Christian Bale in the raincoat with the ax or Christian Bale covered in blood laughing. And the, the, the dude bro toxic masculine you know douchebags would totally eat this up it's it's the same thing with scarface and you know so many other posters and i say that as somebody who had multiple joker posters in my room so i uh i'm not just throwing stones here american psycho i think does have such an opinion and such a voice it is a damning satire of so many things, but everybody just remembers the raincoat and the ax and how fun Christian Bale is in that moment. And that's probably to its discredit. Well, and in researching the movie, I discovered there was so much I really loved about this movie. Like for example, Christian Bale totally improvised his moonwalk with the ax. Right. That was not scripted. He's just dancing around with it. And um, Brent Eastman Ellis, the author, said that that was when the movie went too far for him because the character seemed too joyful to be about to commit murder. Hmm. And in the book, some seriously worse stuff happens. Like, it's... Patrick Bateman kills a kid and then pretends to be the doctor to the once the mom comes up in the novel. Right. And, and the novel, it all takes place longer. There's more murders. The murders are described in more detail. Like I didn't, I didn't realize the point you made about, uh, Brett Eastman Ellis being a bit of a misogynist and Mm -hmm. it, it, it clicks and it makes sense now. I mean, I gotta say just personally, that scene where Christian Bale kills Jared Leto, like, like that's everything. Like that is yeah. that is the most fun part of the movie. Yes, and that didn't bother me, which I guess shouldn't be surprising at all. Him killing another another yuppie dude didn't bother me. Sure. It was when Patrick Bateman is seen to use his veneer of privilege to lure women and people of of other minority statuses in to think he's going to help them like with the homeless gentleman he the the homeless man thinks oh he's going to give me money and he starts complimenting him and then Patrick Bateman stabs him in the abdomen right I'm trying to think of how to like break this down how specifically to get into things I really want to talk about how the the movie has a twist and and I completely forgot the twist I first saw American Psycho like six seven years ago and just completely forgot the back half of it i guess you know Mm. it's called into question how much of the movie and how much of patrick bateman's murderous rampage actually happens and how much is just in his head i think without a doubt the scene where he kills a homeless man which is the first act of violence he he perpetrates in the movie i think that part absolutely happened oh yeah because it's messy, it's quick, and we don't see Patrick Bateman as a shining beacon of beauty. There are other murders where we see him and he's just like, other than the murder, he's shining, he's happy, he's beautiful. And then he just happens to be murdering someone. Right. Like the scene with Alan. But in the in the alley when he's murdering the homeless person he's kind of quick and it's messy and it's complicated. Totally. And, and, you know, thinking about it more and more, I think this is kind of like the, the way the movie can be a fun conversation, just trying to like postulate and, and make your own opinions as to what actually happened and, and how much of it actually took place. What was real? What wasn't like, that's the way you can talk about this enjoyably and not just go away, like idolizing the wrong things. (laughs) So I think there is an interesting angle in how Bateman portrays himself throughout the movie. And there's this really interesting conversation about identity because he has all 
all this veneer to him. Mm-hmm. There's one scene where he's having a menage a trois and he looks at himself in the mirror and he's making all these like really over-the-top poses that only can happen with someone who's who's trying to project this I am I am peak man, I am everything other men want to be, I am envious, or I'm to be envied. Um, right. I was just going to say there are other parts where he gets called on something and he's bumbling and fumbly and awkward. Right. There's, there's Bateman as he wants to be seen. And then, you know, just through human life, there's Bateman when he's forced to be the real Bateman. I, yes. I completely agree. It, w- it was kind of funny with the, the sex scene you're talking about, like a couple scenes earlier in the movie, he just has porn playing in the middle of the day in his <laughs> living room. And he's doing sit-ups to it. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's game tape. Doing he's studying. Mm-hmm. What kind of porn do you play in your living room? <laughs> I was just... Andrew, I'm a lady. <laughs> and the lady never tells. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll turn about as fair play. What kind of porn do you play in your living room? Uh, earth porn, mostly. I just I watch a lot of nature documentaries. Oh, 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 hey, oh, oh, well... <laughs> Well, that's so vanilla. I can talk about that. I like the Food Channel. Oh, great, great British Bake Off. Mm-hmm. There you go. There you go. So, so food porn Paul and Hollywood. earth porn. <laughs> Hi, Mom. <laughs> Sabrina, don't just stare at it. Eat it. Oh, Lord. You, you talk about uh, Bateman's veneer, and I completely agree. And my favorite representation of this is the scene early on when Patrick Bateman is describing his early morning routine. Which oh my God. Yeah. Is over the top no matter when it's taking place, but I feel like it's especially over the top in 2000 where it's like, I use seven different hair care products. I use this different moisturizer. I use this different facial cleanser. And, you know, he's listed off mm-hmm. all the stuff he uses, but what we see is him in the shower and then he steps off and he peels off the face mask. Mm-hmm. I love that, that shot yes. because it is such a, it, it tells so much and it's such a smart, intelligent little metaphor. He's peeling his skin. Like he's shedding like a reptile. He's not human. And, you know, he, yeah. he starts the thing off by saying, I don't exhibit, uh, you know, aside from exterior, I don't exhibit any human character traits. And and that's a masterfully done part, you know. Mm. We, we gave her yeah. a little brief shout out as a feminist, but I think it's important that people don't walk away remembering Brett Easton Ellis's name, but instead walk away remembering director Mary Heron, who was uh. awesome. Who is amazing and who went on record actually speaking of the shower scene saying that the shower scene was her favorite part to film and all of the women who were working on the film like gathered and just watched Christian Bale shower. And they were like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just my favorite mental image. All these fully grown women who have very important jobs in the film industry gathering around him and like, yes, let's let the pretty man wash himself in front of us. Oh, yeah. And, and deservedly, it's it's the men's turn to be subjected to the female gaze. <laughs> oh, you said it, not me. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's true. That, that leads me into one thing, you know, stepping away from the movie for a moment to talk about the movie. Like, this is the moment in his career that really made Christian Bale. Oh, yeah. Um, he had always been a child actor. And had had been a prolific child actor in stuff like Newsies and Empire of the Sun and specifically um, Kenneth Branagh's Henry VIII. I think that was one of his first film roles. So he -hmm. was always in movies, but it wasn't until like like American Psycho made him who he is, who we know him as today. A-list Hollywood actor Christian Bale. Christian Bale, who will get veneers on his teeth and who will work out three hours a day six times a week in the gym and that's on top of working with a trainer as well like he went through so much for this role the role was 
recast and he didn't take another role for nine months because he he somehow knew in his beautiful brain that it would come back to him and that Leonardo DiCaprio would get uncast and it would be his again. That's insane for an actor to do, to just not work for nine months. Absolutely. I mean, he, you know, he, he, he had enough groundwork where obviously he could go ahead and do that and, and still be okay. But the, just the, 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 the confidence and the like greater understanding that, no, this is going to come back to me. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Christian Bale, who is prolific for his yo-yo weight. And I mean, this, Mm -hmm. this kind of started it. He didn't, the I'm looking at his IMDb right now. The next movie he did was actually Shaft with Samuel L. Jackson. Um, so <laughs> he he didn't go immediately into um, super skinny, but within four years, like he was skinny big, skinny big, skinny big, skinny big, and then you know verbally abusing crew people. But I think he's apologized for that. Right, let's go again. Let's not take a fucking minute. Let's go again. And let's not have you fucking walking in. Yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and, and so like this, he, he knew this was a role and this was a role yeah. we, we've talked about how, you know, for whatever reason, Patrick Bateman has a cult of personality to him more than even American psycho. Yeah. And everybody was up for this role. Everybody who is a modern day, like a list actor, Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, Christian Bale, like this just floated around to all the heavyweights and he managed to walk away with it. Yeah. So I, I think what we can establish is this is a good movie. It just, it, it hit you the wrong way. Yeah. I actually, so there's a lot that I love about how it's made. Like, the way there are, like you pointed out, there's fantastic shots. The script writing is amazing. Um, the woman who wrote the script was Guinevere Turner, who also was an actress in the movie. She played Elizabeth, who was Christian Bale's friend turned victim. Okay. Um, you first see her in the Chinese laundry scene, and then she's later the woman who is in the menage a trois with Christy. She's she's the one who touches his watch. She's the one who touches his watch, yeah. yes. And the script, as written by Guinevere Turner, is fantastic. I think she did a really great job in turning a book wherein even the author, Brent Eastman Ellis, said that he, like, he never knew if Patrick Bateman did it or not. He's, he was asked later in interviews saying, did he do it? And he says, I never knew. And she turned the script into it. Oh, no, he definitely did some stuff. Like, it's a definite... I feel like I walk away with a definitive, like, oh, no, he did what he did. And I feel like the authority that she put on the script was really fantastic. I agree. And and that it is... It, it's so interesting that the man didn't have intention behind that. And it took a woman mm. rereading it and finding that intention. Yeah. And I think, I mean, everyone has acted so well. There's some fantastic special effects. It's just scarring to watch it now. <laughs> sure, sure, no, and that's very fair. I, think. I love the soundtrack. I, I think it's amazing. Oh my gosh. Um, and, yeah. and I actually, I, I got to stop. And if you're, if you're driving, pause the podcast after I give you the song recommendation. Everybody needs to look up this song and watch the music video. There's, it's like the second scene in the movie, Christian Bale and his buddies walk into a nightclub and there is a song playing. And that song is called True Faith by New Order. Everybody needs to watch this music video because it is insane. It is Salvador Dali doing cocaine inside of an MC Escher painting. (laughs) Just bonkers nuts. I love it. It is so fun. Wait! Oh, I'm so excited. Yes, I, I don't don't cause a car wreck, but and also come back. Don't don't just pause the podcast, watch the video, and walk <laughs> away. But y- you have to watch this music video, guys. <laughs> okay, I love it. You know what else I love? I love this cast. The cast is dope. Like the cast is is top notch Hollywood. You know? Yes. 
I didn't uh, realize that William Defoe was aging badly until <laughs> I saw this. <laughs> I was like, oh, William Defoe looks good. Oh, oh, oh dear. <laughs> uh, yeah, Willem, Willem Defoe looks a lot more Willem Defoe nowadays than he looks in this movie. Maybe that's what I should say. He's not aging poorly. He's just aging into himself. Yeah, he's he's just getting... It's like Nick Cage. Like, like a young Nick Cage doesn't look like Nick Cage. It's like... 2006 era Nick Cage that has the crazy ass hairline and, and is the Nick Cage we all know and love. <laughs> and baby Reese Witherspoon. Baby Reese Witherspoon. I'm not even positive like where this sits in her canon, but it had to have been. Yeah, this was before Legally Blonde. So this was like early. Oh, wow. Uh, Reese Witherspoon, Willem Dafoe. You know, uh, the Jared Leto as the infamous Paul Allen, mm-hmm. which like, it's funny. I watched this with Mariah and we got to the part where he shows up and she was like, oh, it's it's Jared Leto from 30 Seconds to Mars. And so we, we had to have this fun discussion <laughs> about how like Jared Leto is like the only person I know who has gone from 100 percent just being an actor and then breaking into music to a high degree where he's not just an actor with a band. It's he's 30 seconds to Mars frontman Jared Leto. Yeah. Who happens to act in things. Yeah. Yeah. And then rounding it out is the, the beautiful and amazing Chloe Sevigny who like is a vampire, but in a good way. <laughs> What do you mean by that? Um, so the most recent thing I saw her in, she was in the Hulu uh, miniseries, The Act, about, um, oh, what's her face? Gypsy Lee Blanchard murders. Um, and for anyone unfamiliar, oh. Gypsy Lee Blanchard is a girl who killed her mother because her mother, like, lied to her her entire life and told her she was like four years younger than she actually was told her she had all these horrible illnesses convinced her that she had cancer and she was dying when none of it was true and it was just her mother was kind of a crazy scam artist oh my god no like the act is pretty amazing there's also a a really fascinating documentary called mommy dead and dearest Mm. when people feel ready to get into like a real life murder thing. Um, I highly recommend it. (laughs) I'm going to pass for a minute. Thanks though. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. By people, I meant you. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean? I just, I don't want to make you watch American psycho and then go straight into like something that might also be somewhat unpleasant, but then has the extra layer of, Oh, by the way, this is real (laughs) anyway. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, if I do decide to have children, I don't plan on lying to them and telling them they're four years younger than they are and they have diseases that they don't have. But, you know, maybe that's just I have high standards for parenting. Who can say, you know, (laughs) vaccinate your kids. Anyway, uh, all of this to say, Chloe Sevigny is in the act. She plays, um, you know, a neighbor of the main characters and uh, this was 18 years after American Psycho. And, you know, aside from her haircut, she looks exactly the same. All I mean to say is she is a truly gorgeous uh, human being who oh. takes care of her skin and has looked amazing for forever. She also has. That's what you meant. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought you were like. She's a vampire in a good way. And I was like, does she blood for Dracula suck blood up? But for some reason, it's okay. I don't think she's in any vampire movies, but she's in more than a couple of movies in our list. So I can't wait to see her more. But no, she just, she, she, she looks good. She's a vampire like Keanu Reeves. Got it. Do you want me to go? I think if you stay, something bad will happen. Um, she does a great job. Of course, she plays Bateman's secretary, Jean. Oh, you know, we, we talk about the scenes that we do and don't think happen. And we've talked about, you know, one of my favorite scenes is 
you know, the scene where Bateman murders Paul Allen, another one of my favorite mm-hmm. scenes. And I say that with respect, cause I think it's also like the scariest part in the movie for me is the mm-hmm. scene where Bateman invites Gene to his apartment mm-hmm. after work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there is, you know, there's the, the infamous nail gun scene um, and this yeah. was around the part where I I just forgot like what actually happens in this movie because the tension is so horrible and you it's you so just bad. you don't know what's gonna happen. You figure he's about to murder her horribly, and it's you know by if it actually happens, which I think that scene a hundred percent actually happens. Um, you know, she's saved just through pure chance and doesn't get nail gunned. Yeah. Because Reese Witherspoon's character. I'm not even sure. Yeah, I gotta gotta look it up too. Hold on. Evelyn. Reese Witherspoon's character, Evelyn, um, calls to leave a voicemail. And prior to that, Bateman was kind of having this, conversation with gene where gene thinks she's being seduced gene thinks perhaps she and bateman are about to be intimate and bateman's looking around for like hmm which murder weapon should i choose to murder this girl with and then marilyn evelyn evelyn Evelyn. sorry (laughs) evelyn calls and leaves like a really personal message and the tension just drops and suddenly the entire scene shifts away from is he going to kill her to he asks her to leave very suddenly because he's like, if you don't leave, I'm going to do something bad. Something about Evelyn's call makes Bateman realize himself. And that's why the scene was the most fascinating and terrifying scene for me. Sure. The whole movie that, and there's a casual, no big deal shot of someone's head when Bateman opens the fridge. Right. You know, (laughs) (sighs) Yeah, I mean, like, Jean never realizes how close to the cliff she came to falling off. And you bring up a good point about the way his demeanor changes. I think that's, like, more evidence as to why that part actually happened. Because we're kind of establishing this through line of when Bateman acts like an actual human being it's real and Mm, mm -hmm. to go from that, like the moment's gone and I'm reminded of my real responsibilities. Like that's, that's a very human thing. Yeah, for sure. And there was this argument throughout the movie. um, I'm trying to find where I put it. There's a scene before he murders Paul Allen, where Bateman is taking seen taking a pill out of a prescribed medicine bottle in the cabinet. And then also when he calls Jean, and has a nervous breakdown in public later in the film, he's seen as clutching a similar bottle. So there are very, very subtle hints throughout the movie that Bateman is dealing with some kind of mental illness and mental problem. But I think this scene is the most indicative of it, where he goes so quickly from, I'm going to kill her with a nail gun, to she needs to leave leave my apartment now because if she doesn't i'm going to do something bad totally speaking of the paul allen scene you know something else that bateman does throughout the movie is goes on his long like almost rehearsed rants about various um you know music artists and he's gotten an extensive right. cd collection he clearly has opinions about everything he's got his favorites what does it say that i thought of your husband every single time <laughs> bateman did this um oh boy oh I boy love, maybe i, I love need to alex. have a chat with alex i love alex <laughs> i mean it with with respect to his encyclopedic knowledge of uh, all all forms of music. But, yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I just to to, to break it down seriously, I I watched it and I had to wonder so is music the one thing he actually does love because mm. you could take it either way, but I don't feel like he could fake that sort of extensive passion and knowledge but then you think about it and it's like well i mean 
no, I guess he could fake that very easily. It's just pretending to care about something he's researched extensively. And Patrick Bateman seems like the kind of person who would research something extensively and then pull from four different opinions to make it sound like he has one of his own. So I, I, I really go back and forth on like, is it the one thing he actually likes or is it just Mm. one of his serial killer tells? I think it's the latter because there's other things in the movie that tip their hat to this, but it's more for me, it's more along the line of commercialism Because every album he talks about, he does compare the album he's discussing with the artist's earlier work. And he always says something along the lines of, I'm not a fan of their earlier work because it was too XYZ. But this album, da-da-da-da-da-da. And the album he's always talking about is the album that was the band or artist's commercial hit. The one that made them big. So the album of Huey Lewis and the News was like their first people will listen to this album. And same with, I think it's Whitney Houston and later with Genesis. And I think this is also reflected in the business card scene where they obsess over the cardstock and the font and all of them have a typo on their business cards, by the way. Right. None of them actually spell vice president, right? None of them spell acquisitions, right? right. They spell it A-C-U-I-S-T-I-O-N-S. They're missing the Q. But... It's this obsession over, like, the material good, the commercialism, the, like, material thing, which was very much a theme in the 80s of, like, the height of give me culture, where it's, like, we are consuming constantly. And I think it was more, like, this is a fascination with consumerism than his passion. That's fair. I can I can 100% buy that and agree with that take because that's that's the other major thing that American Psycho satirizes and pokes fun at. You know, you look at the business card scene, what it tells to me more than anything is it's just a a matter of how your own perception influences value because you know they're all whipping out their business cards and they're all the damn same it you know they they he he talks about the different fonting and the race lettering and stuff but for me it it just reminds me of like when you're planning a wedding or a fancy party and you hire a a planner and they're like okay do we want eggshell or bone for the tablecloths and no one cares yeah except for the one person who absolutely cares and it's normally the person who's hosting Not the person who's hosting the party, but the person who's, like, the venue owner. Oh, well, I think the bone is so much better. No one cares. Yeah. I I think there's... I think his love of music is similar to his, like, his facial care routine. It's more like, I do this so I can be the best, most perfect, most fitting in human. Sure, 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 sure. No, I just, I I agree. I'm thinking about all the other different examples of like satirical satirical consumerism because it's not even Bateman for a lot of Oh no, it's everybody. It's it's everybody. It's this whole weird little posse of vice presidents who, you know, care about this restaurant doesn't even have a good Coke bathroom or, you know, well, I'm not eating there if we can't get a reservation at the nicest place in town. Right. You know, it's just dripping with how big of schmucks and idiots they all are. Yes. At one point they say, oh, is that Ivanka Trump over there? And then another point, Bateman is driving in a car with Evelyn and says, oh, I think that's Donald Trump's car. And there's this fascination with like the best and wealthiest and most pinnacle of wealth that they can find. Right. The opulence. We only go to the restaurant where it's the 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 duck foie gras with seaweed foam garnish on the side. I've never <laughs> I've never gotten rich food like even beyond just how this movie makes fun of it. I've never understood how any of that is supposed to be good or fun or appetizing. Do you know what fo- foie gras is? It's like blended. It's like pate, isn't it? It's duck liver, duck or goose liver. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. But the way that it's made is you specifically overfeed the duck or goose until they burst. Gross, but 
incredibly fitting for this movie. It's so opulent that it's literally bursting at the seams. It's almost violent with how opulent it is. Sure. Yeah, that's a great, like, that. that's a great comparison. Also, speaking of the fancy food, the first, like, two seconds, first two seconds of the movie are red drips. And as a kid who grew up in California, I was like, oh, it's a Carl's Jr. commercial. (laughs) And then I was like, oh, no, wait, it's blood. (laughs) And then, of course, it ends up being fancy food. Right. So, yeah, you you were closer the first time anyway. Um, this is the second time we referenced Carl's Jr. And I would just like to put in the universe if Carl's Jr. wants to sponsor this show, uh, we will we will figure out a way to reference it in every episode. We absolutely will. <laughs> I love Chicken Stars, a thing you can only get at Carl's Jr. and not at Hardee's. They are chicken nuggets shaped like stars. Oh my god, that's right. Yeah, 90s kids remember. All I know is... Um, when I grew up in Colorado, there was a Carl's Jr. that was far enough away that, like, we only got that fast food on special occasions. And <laughs> I look back sure. on those days with uh, with great fondness. Uh, <laughs> Carl's Jr., come give us money. We'll rep you. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you for indulging whatever I just did. <laughs> Are you kidding? I love it. I would love to be repped by Carl's Jr. I want to be a hot Carl's Jr. gal. Uh, just eating a cheeseburger on the on the hood of a, on the roof of a convertible. <laughs> <laughs> Except I've got, for some reason, I've got all my podcast equipment with me. So, like, I'm wearing giant headphones and I'm holding my little microphone. I'm living for it. It's a look. Carl's Jr., come represent. Talk to me. <laughs> So what else with this movie? Uh, there's a Texas Chainsaw cameo, which I, I greatly appreciated. <laughs> like when when Bateman's running down the hallway with a chainsaw. No, like literally there's so there's the one time where he's working out in his apartment and he's watching porn. But there's another instance where he's like just reading a magazine or something. But behind him playing on the TV is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, and it's it's just uh, such a such a bizarre little but incredibly telling it, it foreshadows the chainsaw scene that comes like 20 minutes later um <laughs> a little bit of placement there yeah i love that i the 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 chainsaw scene i think is really where like your suspension of disbelief is forced to be questioned like up until yeah. that moment of the movie, everything seems plausible. All of Bateman's murders and his, you know, his dance with um, Willem Dafoe's detective character. It all seems like, okay, okay, I buy this. Somebody could get away with this until you get to the chainsaw scene where he's running naked down the halls and, you know, nobody's opening their door for this poor girl. And then the idea that he would be able to drop a chainsaw six stories and hit a woman at the bottom. Like that's the moment where you really have to go, okay, wait, what is, what is this happening? Maybe it's just, I haven't seen many horror movies or maybe it's like my sensitivity to them, but I was like, oh, of course this is happening. Everything is terrible and it's the worst and I hate it. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) So I was utterly shocked by the ending because I was like, oh, you mean he didn't kill a girl from, and then I had to reevaluate and I was like, yeah, I guess that is kind of unrealistic. It truly wasn't until the scene with the cat where the, where the ATM says, feed me stray cat, and then he kills a random street lady, and then he shoots two cops, and then somehow a stray bullet from his shooting the two cops blows up their car, and even Bateman looks at the gun like, uh, what? Yeah. Um, it wasn't until then that I was like, oh, maybe this is in his brain. So the end scene, I was like, oh, it's totally in his brain. Right. Wait. <laughs> Yeah, for, for me, that's where it breaks down. But I, I actually, after uh, watching the movie, I read this fascinating article on Looper. Um, I, I don't remember the title, but it was definitely on Looper. And it was about the ending of American Psycho. And it actually mm-hmm. posed a theory as to how 
everything in that apartment could have actually happened. You know, all of the dead bodies, the walls painted with blood, um, all of that could have plausibly happened. And what they were posing was the reason why the real estate agent lady acts so weird to him is because she's mm-hmm. just trying to get him to leave. You know, it, the, the, the notion is that Paul Allen's apartment where that takes place is such a good property in New York that it would be easier and, and more profitable for the owners of the building to just literally cover the whole incident up and slap a fresh coat of paint on everything and make sure the psycho doesn't come back. And like that fits so well with all of the other consumerism of the movie. The idea that like, okay, we're not going to kill, but we're certainly not above hiding a murder in order to sell this condo. Oh, nope. Sure. Don't like that at all. Oh, I agree. (laughs) Oh, well, it did feel very reminiscent of to pair it with something much happier and much sweeter in my world. It felt kind of reminiscent of um, Neverwhere where one of the characters is in his apartment and his apartment is getting sold out from underneath him. And it's kind of that weird, like, what the heck is going on here? So I, I liked the I liked the way that the real estate agent lady kind of pressed it and was like, I think it's time for you to leave. But ugh, reimagining that they just slapped up a coat of paint over all the blood and just got rid of all the bodies. Ugh, it's a, I hate it. I agree. I, I it's definitely uh, unpleasant, but it is so interesting just the way that Heron and uh, Turner mm. created this this just very complex did it will they was it real or not kind of narrative because you know you go straight from that scene to the last dinner scene where Bateman's talking to his lawyer and you know, talks about his confession phone call and the lawyer's just laughing it up. And, you know, Bateman's dead serious until the guy's like, I had lunch with Paul Allen in London. What are you talking about? This isn't funny anymore. Like, yeah, it, it, that's why, you know, it's kind of interesting that Turner's like, he definitely did something because it's almost like the movie refuses to make it clear. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I mean, definitely Turner said that she was trying to comment on or trying to encapsulate the feeling of the book that you never quite know. Um, She said that she was disappointed that some people came away with the idea that Bateman didn't kill anyone because she says, that's not my idea because I feel he definitely killed some people. Right. I think my theory is that he absolutely kills the people he could get away with killing. I don't think Bateman could get away with killing Paul Allen, but I think he could definitely get away with killing homeless people and sex workers. Yeah, absolutely. I'm shaky on Elizabeth just because I don't know anything about Elizabeth's backstory. Right. Or who she is or anything. She was high society enough that they were running in the same social circles. I think she was a friend of Evelyn's or maybe like a, I think maybe like a friend from college for Bateman. Mm. That part definitely like her murder is one of the most muddy parts, especially because now that I think about it, you never actually see how she dies. Just all of a sudden she's being strangled under the bedsheets or something. Mm-hmm. I th- I think I read somewhere that Bateman was stabbing her under the bedsheets. Which makes sense. But I did find it pertinent to the end scene, like the way that I was tipped off that it definitely wasn't real, the end scene, is that Bateman never uses a gun in any other scene. He uses blades and blunt objects, but he, he, never, he never uses a gun for anything else. Right. Yeah. It's funny to me that, like, I don't think that many people remember this as a man who has a breakdown, Mm, mm -hmm. a very disturbed man, an evil man, just because he has a breakdown. That doesn't mean he's sympathetic. And Hey, I just reviewed Joker a month before it came out, (laughs) but you know, someone who still does bad things and, and has a mental breakdown. And 
like yeah. like myself i watched this movie years and years ago and just all of that part flew out of my head tonight i uh <laughs> i just had to kill a lot of people well and i think i think one of my favorite parts of the movie was bateman's breakdown his his call and confession to his lawyer it was just one an example of fantastic acting but i think that was the best example of the real bateman we ever saw sure and he runs such a gamut of emotions in that call you know i've uh I've listened to some podcasts by a couple of filmmakers and they always talk about like, it's such a gift to an actor to trust them to do it in one take and to not Mm -hmm. like to not over edit a scene, but you know, to just, to just trust your actor and give them the stage as it were give them the screen and just let them you know work with the material and that's exactly what heron did for bale there and he sunk it that is an amazing piece of acting right there yeah i think heron's relationship with her actors is is really interesting in in my reading i read that um heron asked defoe to play all of his scenes with Bale three times right one way one way that he that Defoe was acting like Bale definitely did it one time that he didn't think he did it and one time that he wasn't sure and she said she always took the best of his takes and I I I read that and I I forgot about that but I love that I think that is brilliant direction because it it makes going back and re-watching all of the stuff with detective kimball so much more interesting because like you you can at least guess take for take what his opinion was and it, it just it helps add to the bizarreness of the character where one moment he really seems suspicious and then the next he's you know happy hunky dory um i'm so glad you brought that up because i i would have completely forgotten i think it's one of my favorite directorial decisions in the movie yeah my other favorite story of mary heron and her actors is that she and christian bale watched supposedly like hours and hours of porn together to try and figure out the choreography for the menage a trois and the sex scenes. Like, yeah, (laughs) worked out for him. (laughs) Well, I'm just thinking of like, can you imagine having to do that with someone who is essentially your boss? Right. Yeah. And then apparently Christian Bale drew a bunch of like stick figures and he was like, I think it'd be really great if I did this, you know, here. And he'd like the drewstick figures of the different positions. That is adorable. <laughs> I know. That's what I need to think of when I'm scared of this movie is the silliness that goes that went into making it. Absolutely. Yeah. The just because because so this, this is the perfect segue. I think that leads us in like there is so much, even though I, I think it's fair to say this movie shook you the most. Yeah. Out of everything we've watched so far. Yeah. This movie shook you the most, but you were still able to walk away with things you enjoyed. I like that. Oh, very much. Very much. And I think this is one of my favorite times of reading about the making of. Sure. I I always advocate if if you're into film stuff, you're going to be into behind the scenes, like biographies and documentaries and stuff. Yeah, for sure. So you liked it, but would you say American Psycho is cult? Eh, Andy. (laughs) Andy, this movie made so much money. It did. It was a smash box office hit. It made so much money, Andrew. <laughs> and that is a a chief ding on its its cult uh, spectrum. I I will agree with you. But then it also has like such a following, right? And I almost wonder. Like my answer is. I think this might be cult, but I think it might be for all the wrong reasons. 
Oof. You know, it's yeah. it's incredibly quotable. It is Oh yeah. totally remem- memorable, but as I said at the start of this, like people or at least most people only remember certain things and and one could argue the wrong things about this movie yeah this is kind of one of those movies like like catcher in the rise a book where if you see if you are on a date with a guy and he says my favorite book is catcher in the rye because i love holden caulfield run run the other way (laughs) jesus (laughs) yes that is a very indicative example (laughs) though like if if you go on a date and someone's like, oh, I really love American Psycho, I'd be like, nope, sorry, bye. <laughs> so I, I got to say, just because it, it makes me laugh, um, you say that, and we have a, a, a dear friend of the podcast, Matthew. Hey, Matthew. Um, I was hey, I was telling him about this um, and how we were watching American Psycho. Um, and he was like, oh, excellent. Amazing. That's my wife's favorite movie. We watch it like twice a year. <laughs> I'm sorry. Aaron? Aaron? No, Aaron no, 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 no. Not, not Matt Calder, though. I love you, Matt. Oh. And I hope you're listening. <laughs> no. Which Matt? Uh, Matt? Matthew Goslin, my, my, our, our biggest fan in Canada and maybe the world. <laughs> Uh, well um cool cool matt are you you doing okay pal everything okay in there in the frozen north i haven't met your your lovely wife matt but um i guess ask her if her favorite book's catcher in the rye and oh no if it is message me (laughs) privately It's okay, Matt. Blink twice if you're being held against your will. (laughs) No, we love you, buddy. Um, I, so, so like I said, this movie is infinitely quotable and I just wanted to briefly shout out my favorite quote in the movie. There's a couple different instances where Patrick Bateman says something just utterly horrible to usually it's bartenders <laughs> or people in clubs. At one point, he's sitting in a roped off section with some, you know, ditzy blonde who's just in his presence for some reason. You know, she asks, what do you do? And he just goes, I'm mostly into murders and executions. And I, I love that because I could see that being real because he knows mm-hmm. she's not actually listening. And even if she was, the loud club music's in the way. And that's just really fun mental image for me. And her follow-up is, do you like it? Because most guys I know who do mergers and acquisitions are very happy with it. (laughs) Because that's what she heard. She heard mergers and acquisitions. Yeah. And so that that leads into my Oscar. And for 2000's American Psycho, I don't think it won anything. If If it did, I missed that. But... In either case, you know, every episode of Cult Fiction, we assign our own Oscars to a movie. And I would like to give American Psycho the Oscar for Best Double Entendre Conversation. And, you know, my quote kind of applies to that. It's certainly a double entendre. But specifically, the moment I'm talking about is that scene between Gene and Patrick in their apartment where first they're they're talking about hooking up but not really talking about hooking up and it manages to flip into neither of them are saying it but she thinks he's going to seduce her he thinks he's going to murder her you know he's got the line of if you stay i'm going to do something bad and the fact that there are three different meanings to just that sentence alone it's it's a brilliant moment in the script. I love the performances. I love how the moment plays out. And that is my Oscar. I love that. I love that. I think that's a really beautiful moment in the movie, too, because Jingen thinks he's being really sweet and really heartfelt and saying, you need to leave because I could hurt you. And what he's actually saying is, you need to leave because I'm going to murder you if you don't. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, that segues very nicely into my Oscar, because my Oscar kind of takes place in that same yeah. scene. So my Oscar, 
for American Psycho is I would like to give it the Oscar for weirdest thing to make an actress do. And why? And I'm going to explain. So in that same scene, Patrick opens the fridge to give Jean a carton of ice cream. And when he opens the fridge, you see someone's head. And that, like, I shrieked out loud. It was terrifying. I needed a moment. I had a nightmare about it. It was horrible. And then I was researching for my notes the next day. And apparently the actress who played that head had to, like, sit in the back of this, like, emptied out refrigerator and, like, poke her head out through (laughs) the shelves of the fridge. And so I'm just imagining this, like, beautiful actress being like, okay, I'm ready. And she's, like, poking her head out through through this fridge. So, yeah, then I proceeded. Anytime I think about the head now, I'm just imagining this, you know, Fully grown woman being like, okay, ready to poke my head into a refrigerator. It's fine. It's fine. This is work today. I'm getting my day rate and a half. (laughs) This is how I pay bills. By putting my head in a fridge. There you go. Uh, I think that's great. I think that's a lovely, um, I, I told you this earlier, I think that's a lovely tactic for... Like taking something upsetting and putting it on its head. I, I need to learn how to do that better myself. On its head, Andy, really? Hey. <laughs> Boo. You know, the worst part is I didn't even catch I did that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I always love to turn on its head. Wow. Stretch. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> it was a bad segue. I'm aware. No. Cue no. the saxophone music. Yeah, there you go. So, every episode we assign Oscars, we also like to play a a game that is dear to both of our hearts, and that is, of course, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Yeah. Yeah. You want to go first? I give my Oscar. You go ahead. All right. Mine's real weird. Are you ready? Uh, Okay, now I'm intrigued. Okay. Samantha Mathis, who played Courtney, um, was in Super Mario Brothers with the fantastic Frank Welker. Oh, dear. (laughs) And Frank Welker was in Balto with Kevin Bacon. Nice. Okay. Ah, uh uh-huh. animated here. It's been a while since we've done that. <laughs> we really should uh, just change the game to Six Degrees of Frank Welker. Oh, my God. You could equally play it just as well right? with Frank Welker. The man has done everything. <laughs> everything. I like that. I like that a lot. Sadly, my uh, my link did not include the great Frank Welker. Um, oh, one point. But I did. Uh, I I I did manage to use uh, my favorite actress in the movie, Chloe Sevigny, and mm-hmm. she was in. Oh God, I don't remember my own uh, my own little code here. One more, because no, I know who. I just don't remember to what. Give me one sec. Oh goodness. Oh oh goodness. Oh gracious. Oh, oh my. Oh Andrew. Well, it was C S in T S M W M F in X F C W K B. Right. Duh. Yeah, I've got everything else figured out. I don't know if I'm going to include this or not, but if I am. Um, yeah, we realized Six Degrees is more fun when we don't know each other's answers ahead of time via a note sheet. So I decided we should start just using, like, acronyms. And that, <laughs> I, I couldn't imagine that would just bite me in the ass. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Chloe Sevigny was in The Snowman with Michael Fassbender. Uh, the snowman okay. being a actually god awful like really shitty serial killer mystery crime thing mm-hmm. but she was in it with michael fassbender who as i've said on this podcast before was in x-men first class with kevin bacon oh nice yeah. the snowman not jack frost which is the movie i had once upon a time confused it for and i was like i love that movie <laughs> to you and you were like really hold on wait what and i was like yeah i like how you know at the end he like 
Ugg becomes the snowman and he's a dad and it gives everyone closure and you're like, oh wait, we're talking about two very <laughs> different movies. Two very different movies. And and now that I, I think about it, there's a whole other movie. Like the snowman is about a serial killer who incorporates snow into his movies and I'm trying to think there's another movie which is literally about a killer snowman and it is just just god awful it's probably on our list (laughs) is that Black Christmas or is that another one that's yet another one um hey Canada UK you alright buddy what's what's wrong friend (laughs) movie about killer snowman oh lord oh yeah no because they're both called jack frost that's what it is oh see okay there's jack frost with michael keaton and there's jack frost the movie where a killer snowman um makes an icicle like fall in a lady's head cool 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 so i'm gonna take a huge left turn and talk about our reading recommendations for this movie. Very good. I support it. Um, so being that this movie is based on a book, yes, you could read the book. Eh. After all my research, I've decided I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to recommend are two other very different books. I'm going to recommend My Sister the Serial Killer, which is a book that is relatively recent, and it's by Oh Yin Can Braithwaite. I hope I pronounced that correctly. And Bright Lights, Big City by Jay McInerney, which I'm recommending because it has a lot in common with kind of the themes of the movie of like the 80s gimme culture, the consumerism, everything is focused on consuming. And you're thrown into that completely um, because the entire book is written in second person. So it's literally about you. So it's kind of fascinating in that way, too. Awesome. I love it. Yeah. yeah and and I, I was the dick who made a joke of like, hey, American Psycho's a book. There's your reading recommendation there, kid. <laughs> um, and I'm, I, I, I am retracting that because it, it sounds like uh, it's meant for those same dude bros who just hang up a picture of Christian Bale with an axe in their college dorm room. I mean, I haven't read it, so I wouldn't know. But yeah, it does sound a little scarring. So if you're on, if you're more on my side of things than Andy's side of things, if you're on the side of things where your Jack Frost is the warm, fuzzy family movie, <laughs> maybe don't. <laughs> Very fair. So should we see our next movie? Yeah, you know, I was gonna say, Stephanie, I I haven't meant to run you through a gauntlet of bloody <laughs> and potentially traumatizing um films but with that said i'm, I'm now going to spin a giant wheel and and let the <laughs> the same hand of fate decide <laughs> cool 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 it'll just be a movie about a giant snake it's yeah, fine it's fine it's fine um so we do have 316 movies still on our list we here at cult fiction like to take a chance on what we watch next and let's give it a go. Do, 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 do. Ah. Huh. So we have come up with number huh? 218. It is not a scary movie. Uh, well, yes. actually, maybe, maybe, but in a very different way. It doesn't have a giant snake. Uh, Coming up next on. Andy. Uh, yes. Tension building. Tension building. Get to the point. Uh, Coming up next on Cult Fiction, the 1960 Beatles musical, Yellow Submarine. Oh, I love it. So I I say this might be scary because I distinctly remember the the Big Blue Meanies can be like kind of disturbing to young kids, much in the same way a heffalump can. So... I love that this is like the most gentle thing that I could possibly think of. Do you want to see four British men get really high and sing about living under the ocean? Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, also it's our, our it's going to be our first animated movie since the uh, since our beginning with My Neighbor Totoro. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited! Yeah. I've actually never seen this, so I have no idea if it's like the I've seen other Beatles movies. So I've never seen this one, so I don't know what it's like. This is so this is the animated one. I've seen like 
I was half paying attention to it once in a library, and that is as close as I've come to seeing it. Yes. So, theoretically not as traumatizing as American Psycho, but we are going oh into Uncharted Waters. Um, at time of recording it is available on amazon prime we record these so far in advance that may not be the case but maybe it will be let's hope so well that's all for this edition of cult fiction if you want to keep up you can follow us on twitter and instagram at cult fiction cast you can also follow rate and review us on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time when we all live in a yellow submarine, a yellow submarine, a yellow submarine, a yellow submarine. Uh, we all live in 1960s directed by George Dunning, yellow submarine for Stephanie Johnson. I've been Andy Bowell. <laughs>